think that'll be quite enough? Uh, yeah, I think we'll probably be okay. We could go sit out in the front or something. No, no, I think this is okay. Oh, but I can't. Who was the founder of National Forests and uh, Teddy Roosevelt's principal conservationist? Oh, uh, Gifford uh, Pinchot. Yes. And Gro told me that in, in uh, prepping uh, Hickel, one of the questions Gro asked him was, uh, what do you think of Gifford Pinchot? And, and Wally said, what is, what is a Pinchot? <laughs> <laughs> says, we've got problems. <laughs> well, <laughs> oh, um, no, I don't know. I, I really don't know anything about that. Okay. It was interesting. Uh, and I know that I've always heard that Nixon didn't think much of Wally and didn't think, care about the Secretary of Interior position at all. All right, well, the way I hear Nixon didn't, I think Bush doesn't care about domestic policy, but Nixon mm -hmm. really cared um, much, much less. Um, yeah, but Nixon was a much better domestic president. Right. Well, uh, Bobby Kilberg's view on that is that the reason why is because Nixon, unlike Bush, made John Ehrlichman president of the United States mm -hmm. for domestic policy. And he was a rather decent man. Right. And, and native affairs. Right. And he was competent in things. And that and the Bushes had no interest in it. Plus, he didn't bother to like give it over to somebody else yeah. before. Anyway, that's a whole other subject. But, well, one of the things, um, at the time that you come on in 68 with BP, mm -hmm. um, Alyeska did not get formed, I guess, until uh, 70, right? Something like that. Right? I mean, so this was... It was the triumvirate, the three president, uh, the three oil company pipeline subsidiaries. Each had a little private jet, and they just sort of jet around the nation, meeting in endless meetings. And that's what they're doing before Alaska. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, one of the things that, that I find phenomenal, and, and maybe I just have not found the correct paper trail, but um, Native Claims obviously starts in earnest in, in 69 when Stevens and Gravel um, get into the Senate, mm -hmm. and you know, there's a bunch of hullabaloo, and, and it's a major issue, major white backlash backlash in Alaska, et cetera, et cetera, and you, you finally get a, a bill out of, out of uh, the Senate Interior Committee in the spring of 70, and, it, and it, it's on the floor in the summer of 70, and, and of course ends in ruin in the Aspinall Committee in September of 70 when Aspinall refuses to move the bill. And all through 19... You're telling me all these well, things. Well, no, I understand that, but yeah. well, the reason I, yeah. I, do, I say all that is because all through that Congress, I see no presence of the oil industry really until the fall of '70, and and what makes that interesting to me, if that first of all, I guess my question is, is that really true? Because Foster, of course, what I want to ask you about in a second, did not get involved in this thing until the fall of '70. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know whether it was it was very amateur and it was very. Uh, it was done by the John Nodell, who was the Exxon lobbyist, and Phil Helmig was the Arco lobbyist, and little me, for several months my office was a basket which I had on my lap, but I didn't even have a <laughs> desk. Uh, 
it took a long time for the oil companies to, to cotton to the fact that this was very important business and was costing them a great deal of money and would continue to do so. And uh, I had, before I came to work for oil, I had thought oil was all-powerful, all-knowing. Um, and in fact, I found it was just the reverse. I mean, that they were... Uh, it's a hierarchy of yes-men. And uh, it was like the Vietnam War. And the, the you know, chairman of the board's worried about getting the pipeline approved. And uh, he's told, well, we're right on right on it, it's going to be done, and, and all the way down the line. So that people would tell everybody else, mislead them. And, uh, it was a, not, it was a very inefficient, very inefficient operation. Well, what makes it? Quinn O'Connell is the man who was steady, honest, solid, and consistent, and uh, he represented the pipeline as early as when I went to work for him. Uh, and he still does. It's sort of become a lifetime career. And he was doing quite well. I, mean, I think at the beginning they, they hoped they could keep out of Native claims. Um, right, but see, what makes, it, what makes that strange is that's absolutely correct, that all through 68, 69, land claims are sort of perking along, mm -hmm. but there's a whole separate effort downtown to get the right-of-way permit issued in. And I was the only one of the three who kept saying, and that was my mission, I thought, and one of the ways I could justify in terms of my conscience uh, working for the oil company was that you cannot escape the resolution of native claims, that the title is so clouded that you aren't going to be able to borrow the money, you're not going to get, you know, get the permit, and so forth. Well, but, but, um, and well, Quinn came along to feel that way, too. Right, but what makes it doubly strange is that, is that belief in the sort of the two-track theory of this uh, ended, or should have ended, quite dramatically. Remember that uh, Alaska Legal Services had filed a lawsuit in early 1970 on behalf of Stevens Village, who was in the middle of the right-of-way. And, on, yeah. and on, the, on April Fool's Day, which, which David Wolf, who was, was a lawyer that handled that case, thought it was always, if you're ever going to issue that opinion, it should have been on April Fool's Day. On April Fool's Day of 1970 was when uh, whatever this judge was here in town issued an injunction against the department, which said, you are enjoined from issuing the pipeline right away until this Aboriginal title thing is cleared up. Now, from that point, looking at it as a lawyer, perhaps with the benefit of hindsight, if I had been a lawyer representing BP or ARCO or the mm -hmm. leaseholders, if I ever needed a demonstration that this deal is dead in the water until it's resolved, that was it. But that's April of 70, and still, all that summer when all the action's going on, you know, you did not see any... When was it that McCutcheon was trying to get village by village to sign off approval on uh, constructing the pipeline over that, their claims? That was uh, in 69. Uh, see what they... He kept disappearing. The oil company presidents pinning their faith on this man. And he was out in a little boat going somewhere, and no one knew where he was for 
days at a time. All right. See that. See that was their. That was. Uh, I don't know whether you remember or not. That was their original approach. See, they, AFN had been organized in '66, so so there was now at least somebody to go talk to, and so. And again, Alyeska hadn't been organized. Emo Naughty. Right. He's still alive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's an He's a nifty guy. Yeah. yeah he's an He's so quiet and gentle. Yeah. Hasn't changed much. Still probably just hasn't aged much either. He probably looks just about. Mm -hmm about uh, the way and he did uh, probably the last time you saw him. But he was afraid of flying. Right, and he would drive back here, if you can imagine such a thing. See, that was, that was one of the reasons everything was so slow. Everybody kept disappearing. But anyway, it is, I mean, you don't recall uh, that lawsuit really jolting these people. I, mean, the, I remember You know, I don't remember the, the date, the details. Uh, I remember the. It did have tremendous impact, but how long it took for that impact to uh, take hold, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't remember April 1st, 1970. As a cataclysm. No, yeah. no. Okay. But I do remember going to. What was it? We appealed to the circuit, and then the circuit court heard it on bank or with three. Yeah, it, and uh, I remember going to the first hearing of that, and being totally frustrated because the Department of Justice was handling it for Interior, mm -hmm. and their attorneys didn't know how to answer basic questions about the the geography of Stevens Village or, or the, the, the the soil or I mean they well one thing that that does happen at the end of 1970 I mean this whole project in terms of the getting native plants to the Congress ends in ruin in, in September of, of 70 when Aspinall goes home without you know, I, I worked for Aspinall too oh really yeah when I had polio in the summer of 52, and I was in hospital two years, and spring of 54, I came back and I worked for Aspinall from January until September, starting just two hours a day and then four hours a day. Uh, he's in a, our family's from Western Colorado. He was an old friend of the family. Uh, he gave me a job because to make me feel like I was somebody, and I was not just a hopeless. Uh, cripple, and he was always kind of like a grandfather to me, and that was another one of the reasons why I think BP hired me, and why I was useful to the oil companies, and that not only did I have, contrary to the, the natives and my knowledge of Alaskans, uh, but I also uh, knew Aspinall quite well, and push come to shove, I could call Aspinall, I very seldom, hardly ever did. Uh, but I could uh, have an impact. Hmm. What were your impressions of Aspinall? Um, I, I, somebody told me that he'd gone probably from about the time you first went to work for him um, to sort of by the end, that at the beginning he was sort of a, almost a uh, populist, uh, mm -hmm. anti-big bank, anti-railroad uh, liberal, and by the mm -hmm. end he seems to have become sort of a, autocratic uh, 
curmudgeonly said so. Well, he was both. I mean, he was both. His 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 votes on. Uh, Public policy issues unrelated to uh, interior were always very liberal. Uh, so, uh, in fact, I think he was in favor of recognition of red China, uh, which was a big issue back then. You know. uh, he ran that committee like uh, Napoleon would have been proud of him. That's the way committees were run in those days, too. He was remarkably efficient, and I always thought remarkably fair. Um, he was from, you know, Western Colorado, and uh, the views of miners and uh, farmers, and uh, the use of water for uh, um, by citizens, uh, all those things he saw quite differently than the New York Times. And every year, every election, the New York Times would run an editorial against him, and he always said that that, that editorial got him reelected. He wouldn't have to do another thing; he just would reprint it, mail it throughout his district. <laughs> Everybody'd say, "Hey, Wayne's pretty good." Well, in terms of the the first uh, sighting that I have of a real oil industry acknowledgement of, of mm -hmm. their involvement with Native Plains is in about October of '70. Uh, by that time, Alaska has finally been formed, mm -hmm. and Ed Patton goes in front of the Anchorage Chamber of Commerce and sort of gives them a speech about how life is going, and that's when he announces, he says, look, gang, uh, there will be no pipeline until Native Plains are settled. And, of course, this is like news to Atwood, right? I mean, everybody goes, what? And it sort of changed the whole mood. That I'm now, all of a sudden, when Ed Patton says that claims and and, oil, and the pipeline is linked. Uh, it, at home, it changed the whole, the whole configuration of the pieces on the chessboard. Do you have any recollection of that, or who put Patton up to doing that, or, or what Patton's view of this would have been when he came on at Alaska? Is he still around? No, he died uh, a couple years ago. I think when he came on to Alaska, he came on because he was hard. Uh, hard-skinned, hard-boiled um, engineer, get things done type, and he was that. Uh, but I think he grew um, in terms of uh, social policy. I think he, he was he was educated. And he got educated. Uh, he put up with a lot of uh, uh, frustration and confusion. Uh, one of the things, I think BP had a role in making the oil companies more aware of native hire and more aware of native claims. Um, one of the things I got BP to do is that, and it must have been right around that time, the chief executives of BP in Alaska, who were then stationed in New York, flew with me up to Barrow and met with the uh, Barrow Native leadership uh, at their invitation. I got them to invite, and we stayed as their guests. And uh, we dressed neckties, coat and tie, like we would in New York. I learned this from Bartlett. He says, they know how you dress. For business, <laughs> this is business. And they know we travel on little jet planes, so we did that. 
And then, I don't know how long, six months later, we invited them back to New York, paid their way back, and set up a, a next process of, of talking back and up between one and one, one on one. And I don't know if it had much impact on the Nupit, but it, it had impact on the BP executives. Um, on uh, Frank Rickwood, who was, who is a very key player in this, and that he was president of BP Alaska. He uh, is a geologist from Australia, and his first 15 years with BP, right after World War II, was in New Guinea, where he just disappeared. And he lived with New Guinea Papua uh, uh, for years and years, and, so, and he spent, still goes up there, and it's, he loves it dearly. And he was the one who believed that, that there was oil in Alaska, and he, throughout the late 50s and early 60s and so on. Okay. Um, but so he was, his mind was oriented towards uh, 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 native claims, aboriginal rights. Uh, he'd seen it in uh, New Guinea, and uh, he was simpatico. He was hard-nosed, he was running a company, but he was simpatico. And his young assistant, who later became president of the company, who's Mike Savage, uh, came Cambridge University, uh, good family, English. Uh, he was bowled over by the, the natives that he met. He was extraordinarily impressed by their, uh, by them. You know, he was, he, was, he didn't patronize them. And he was on that first trip up to Barrow Island. Uh, well, you don't recall putting uh, Patton up to that speech? No, no, but I, the reason I bring this up is that this is the kind of thing that Rickwood uh, and Savage would have pushed. Mm. And it was also, Patton worked very closely with Gwyn O'Connell. He's the, he's the, the, he wanted to understand the effective oil company policy. Uh, you've got to. He was the very center, and there there were hordes of lawyers making tons of money. Uh, but Quinn O'Connell was the one who did the work, and Quinn O'Connell essentially was the one who got people to go in this direction or that. And Quinn became quite close to Patton, and you know Patton had his offices here for some time, and they were in Quinn's suite for quite a while. Um, so uh, I am sure, and, and Bill Foster by that time, if that was 70, would have been involved in this too. Right, well that's actually the next thing I wanted to ask you about is that uh, uh, I've not talked to Charlie about it yet, but I talked to uh, Adrian Parmenter, I don't remember him. Oh, Lord, yeah. Yeah, a while back. And he said uh, that the quick chronology is that Don Wright gets elected president of AFN in October of 70, really in response to native discontent with the mess that they thought people had been making of things in the last Congress. Mm -hmm. And and Wright, for all of his many uh, vagaries, I guess, uh, one of the things Don realized was that he really didn't know what he was doing. He'd been elected, mm -hmm. but he didn't know what to do next. And he happened to know Parmenter. Mm -hmm. and, and Parmenter knew Charlie. Mm -hmm. and, and Adrian told me that, that 
Charlie had then taken him over to see you to talk about all of this. Mm -hmm. And I guess the first, and that that led ultimately to to foster being retained on your recommendation to do all this. So I guess in terms of backing that up, the first thing becomes where did you bump into Charlie? You know, it may be, it may be that the other guys didn't uh, write their book on uh, Alaska claims, like you said, Charlie. <laughs> uh, but, you know, Charlie, throughout my entire experience with Alaska, Charlie was always there at the inception of things. Charlie worked on Quinn O'Connell before Bill Foster. Uh, Charlie, uh, yeah, he was around, and he, he would have had a hand in getting Foster uh, involved, you know. Foster had been in Bartlett's office, and he and I had shared a, a room, and uh, so we were quite close, and we used to do strategy together. And I was never very good at action. I mean, I couldn't walk up and down the halls and stuff and run around, and uh, but I was very good at, I mean, I think I'm pretty good at strategy and uh, Foster has to talk out a policy you know? and so we would uh, gain things out um, and uh, I, I think that Foster is a remarkably effective uh, persuader. Everybody says that actually. Uh, remarkably persuasive, remarkably uh, good. I mean, he's a good man. He's, uh, and he, I think he even very effective and for this now, procedure. Now, do you remember then um, how Foster actually got involved? Did, was no, that on your recommendation or was... Yes, it would have had to, I mean... Foster was with Patton Boggs. Pipeline was a big thing, big contract, you know. I think Foster wanted in, uh, but I certainly wanted him in too. And uh, the Foster worked very closely with Patton after Patton came to take his measure. Uh, as for when I met Charlie. I met him when he first came to Washington to testify, he must have been 16 or 17, on uh, uh, Alaska Native Housing. Right, the Barbara Housing Bill. That's right, that's right. And I, the, day after, the evening after he testified, we went out for dinner, all the, the Natives who had testified. And I just cottoned on to him. Uh, he had a very severe stutter then, stammer. And uh, I'm visibly handicapped, and we developed, an, and we had a kind of empathy, uh, and and a kind of trust that developed over the years, and so that I think that we served a useful function in native claims and the pipeline, uh, in that I had a way of behind the scenes finding out what the natives were saying or talking about and or passing messages back and forth, or, or ideas or something. 
You could take readings on both sides. And the, you and Charlie sort of meeting at the bridge between yeah, the two. Yeah, yeah, and uh, there was a feeling, and I think, amongst the uh, more conservative oil people that I wasn't quite trustworthy. Because <laughs> I knew these strange people, you know. <laughs> well, uh, actually, the the major break point, at least as a for in my present thinking on the whole land claims uh, project in 1971 was the Nixon administration um, coming out in, mm -hmm. in April, uh, committing the president to a 40 million acre billion dollar yeah, bill. And, and overruling the Department of Interior. Right, and Rogers Morton. Um, and, and the story of that is quite interesting, far beyond this tape this afternoon, but basically, I'm sure you know the, the basic outlines is that, is that Parmetter was Charlie too? Right. What, what, what I was, was going to say is that is that they went to um, they developed this White House strategy and they made contact with with Bobby Kilberg and then she got Brad Patterson involved and and eventually in March it all floated up to Ehrlichman and then maybe Nixon maybe not but in that period the the introduction to the White House was made in December. And uh, really, the lobbying that went on inside the White House before either the Ehrlichman or Nixon decision was all in January and February of '71. Now, when you look at a lot of the paper, and I've been over the Nixon archives and have done it, um, the stuff that Patterson's sending around mm -hmm. internally in the White House really very strongly makes the link between between you know. We ought to do this native claims thing because it's the right thing to do, and the president's committed to justice. Oh, and by the way, we've mm -hmm. got to do this before we can clear off the pipeline. Mm -hmm. Now, at the same time that Patterson and and Bobby Kilberg are doing all that, there's a lot of interest in the pipeline at the White House, and I guess John Whitaker was a fellow who was keeping an eye on that for Nixon, and also I guess Peter Flanagan, and so. Uh, that long-winded introduction, I guess, is a way to ask, did, uh, I know that Charlie was around in that, because Kilberg and Patterson both speak quite highly of him, mm -hmm. and, but were you guys, you guys being BP and the oil people, were you in any way involved in that in, in terms of dealing with John Whitaker and Flanagan, or did, or, or even Brad Patterson? I never, I mean, Quinn always tried very hard to keep other people from monkeying uh, with it. He represented the pipeline, and when he talked to Whitaker, he was the one who did it, uh, and then Patton. Uh, as for uh, the native contacts with the White House, I knew all about that from, from the very beginning. I thought, told Charlie, you're nuts. You're <laughs> nuts. And he would say, you know, he would say, no, this uh, Ehrlichman, you know, he represented the Sierra Club, and he's got a soft spark for Indians. And, uh, and I guess, was it per Parmiter who introduced him to Kilberg? I right. don't know. If right. But he, he had his being his bonnet, and he, he, he couldn't get anything out of interior, and he wasn't going to bother. But you don't, you don't recall if, if there had been any oh, oil mean, play into the White House, it would have been through Quinn? I think so, yes. And uh, now you never know about Robert Anderson. Uh, he would be in town every now and then. 
and he did have entree to Nixon personally. Um, but I, I have never heard any story. I mean, the, the, the oil companies never gave a damn about the content of native claims. And they were prepared to have it generous as not. Uh, and the, the oil companies were never, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, all united. You know, uh, ARCO was always much more socially, genuinely socially concerned um, than Exxon, which was never. And so Ohio was not, but BP was within the English context of the, the uh, I will tell you an anecdote now that everybody's dead, I suppose. And this is just within the context of British Petroleum. Mm -hmm. I went over to London at the, after this had dragged on for some time, I don't know how far. And uh, the chairman, uh, Sir Eric Drake, and the board of directors had me for lunch <laughs> on a platter almost. They were so angry. And, uh, you know, I gave them the briefing of all that was happening in the court trial. The, the, which, and the, uh, the chairman of the board of directors of British Petroleum, it's 50% owned by the British government, said, isn't there some way of uh, getting to the judge? I mean, isn't <laughs> And you could literally hear everybody go. And I said, oh, is that the way you do it here? <laughs> he got beat red, very angry. But there, he was willing to bribe. I mean, he, and he was quite serious, so you think? Yeah, I think, it, no, I don't think he was kidding. No, he wasn't kidding. That was a very serious thing. Uh, I suppose that's what you could do in Wagadugu or something. Right. Right. And we are wogs, you know. <laughs> well, um, once Nixon does that, um, then that completely breaks the breaks the mm -hmm. logjam in Congress because obviously Scoop Jackson's running for president, and you know um, Scoop's been running around saying, "Oh yeah, I love natives, and and that's mm -hmm. my love is." And commitment to social justice is, you know, seven million acres or something. And now all of a sudden, that's Richard, jurisdiction. Right. And now all of a sudden, Richard Nixon says, "Well, I believe in social justice too." Mm -hmm. It's forty. So once he did that, really, as a practical matter, um, it's over in terms of policy. But but it's not over in terms of procedure. And um, I am told that uh, that uh, as you suggest, while they began. didn't. Well, they didn't care what was in the bill, mm -hmm. that, that the industry by 71 wanted, right, and, and was really quite helpful both inside both the interior committees and with, uh, say, the southern, you know, Louisiana mm -hmm. senators on the floor and things like that. Do you mm -hmm. recall, were you guys running? Yeah, I recall, yeah, we divvy up, um, and these, uh, we would meet uh, the, the Arco man and Exxon man and I, who can we, you know, who have you got to contact with? Who have you got to contact with? And we were, we were lobbying hard with the natives. Okay. Or 
on, on parallel tracks. Right. Right. Native claims, yeah. Right. And so the the message then just would have been, this is a good vote, take this bill, don't worry about it. We, we the industry, like... That's my, that's my general right. statement. I mean, whether it's specific, there were always deals. I really am going to have to. Right, I know you've got to. And I feel bad about that. Yeah. No, that's, that's actually, we're almost... Uh, Mike Ravel told me he was going to uh, you know, try and get it passed through legislation. Uh, and what did he do? Offer an amendment to something? To oh, the pipeline? Yeah. Right, right, by one vote. And I told him he was crazy. I said, that's absurd. You're just going to kill, ruin it for a generation. It won't work. And then it worked. Yeah. Well, actually, I spent a... Mike's so crazy. Yeah. I spent an afternoon with Mike, and he's in Pebble Beach now. Yeah. And, uh, he looks good. He used to live yeah. in Cabin John. Yeah, he did. He's got yeah. a nifty new wife. Yeah, Whitney. Right. The only, uh, the only other thing, let me turn it off real quick. But on real quick, and then I'll let you get out of here. Um, um, off of what we've just been talking about, um, uh, in terms of Alaska statehood and how, uh, I guess, the Southerners who had, who had opposed statehood for a number of Congresses uh, uh, were persuaded not to do that. Uh, we were talking earlier, maybe. Yeah, well, they were persuaded by, uh, as a result of a deal that Bartlett had made with Dick Russell who was leader of the Southern Forces. Uh, the session before the statehood session, uh, in the closing days of the session, uh, Alaska statehood was threatening to cause a filibuster on the floor of the Senate. And the Senate Majority Leader, uh, Lyndon Johnson, came to Bob Bartlett and said, look, Bob, if you call up your forces this year, I, I promise you that we will, it was, it was, no, he said it was Lyndon Johnson and Sam Rayburn together. He said, we will get statehood for you next year, but first you've got to make your peace with Dick Russell. So they were both in the same meeting. Yeah, they were in the same meeting. And I know this because Bartlett told me this. In 64, when the Civil Rights Act was uh, before the Senate, and uh, Bartlett was very troubled and acting, I thought, in a rather peculiar way. And he told me he wasn't sleeping nights. And then he told me why. And it related to statehood. He had met with Dick Russell. Russell had said that cloture was the way that the southern states uh, were fending off civil rights legislation. And that if he let Alaska become a state, would Bartlett promise to become a senator and to always vote against cloture? And Bartlett agreed. Uh, so in 64, after uh, Kennedy's assassination and Lyndon Johnson had said, we shall overcome, and tremendous pressure, and, uh, Bartlett came in one morning and said, I've got to do it. I've got to go talk to Dick Russell. Uh, he said, I represent a state and my people, and my people want this legislation, and my people are minorities, and so forth. So he went to Dick Russell, told him that he would have to break the understanding, and indeed he did break it. And when he came back, he told me that Russell was very angry and that there'd be no more favorable action on any legislation in the Armed Services Committee. I remember Bartlett saying, for the rest of my life. <laughs> uh, I told, I mean, I told that story after Bartlett died to uh, Biden. 
and she she concurred. Uh, I I told it to uh, Mary Lee Council uh, years after that, and she denied it absolutely, saying, "Oh no, no, it's not never anything like that. Bob wouldn't do anything like that." Uh, but I, there's corroborating evidence, and when Ted Stevens was appointed, I worked for him on a temporary basis, and he came to me one day and said, Senator Thurmond, who had been a Democrat and then a Republican and a ranking one, uh, Senator Thurmond had come to Stevens and said, Alaska senators have given the commitment, that Bartlett made a commitment for all Alaska senators that uh, they would always vote with the South on cloture. And uh, I told Ted the story and that no, that, that had been broken a long time since. And Ted, uh, said that he had told Thurman that he could not be committed to anything that any previous holder of the seat had said. Well, great. Well, okay. thanks very much. I appreciate okay. it. And, uh...